0: You're listening to the Two Tongues Podcast, and now your hosts, Kyle and Chris. Kyle, and also Chris.
1: What's up, Chris? What's up, Kyle? How are you, sir? Keeping it brief on the intro.
0: Yeah, the longer one's cool, but it's, it's pretty long. It is long. And when I listen to it, I always skip it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, skip, I skip pretty much all intros at this point, yeah, don't you? Yeah, pretty much. Um, but so, you kind
0: of feel like you need one, though. yeah. Or it's not. Or it's not professional. It doesn't seem official. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Like because right.
1: the first couple times people listen to it, they're gonna listen to the intro. And if you have a really cool intro song, people might listen to the intro.
0: That's true. I've I've uh, I've recognized that with certain commercials, and the one that I'm seeing nowadays a lot because I, I watch Hulu and the, it, they only got like six commercials. They're always repeating. It's terrible um, when you're watching the Hulu with live TV and one of them is an auto insurance commercial. Tell me if you've seen this one. It's a black dude driving a convertible in like the desert and there's a song playing and he sing, he's he's jamming to it. He's nodding his head. He starts singing the song and then the hood ornament on his car starts singing along with him.
1: Trippy. You, no, you do I know not, this? I have not seen it.
0: Alright, it's fucking hilarious and I, I would watch that it's unexpected. It hits me in the funny bone like 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 I didn't expect the left hook to the funny bone. Yeah. So every time it comes on I'm okay with it. Generally <clears throat> because it, we're now in this streaming age, commercials are like the bane of my existence, mm-hmm. but every now and then you get one that's clever, you're like, "Well done. <coughs> well, well done marketing team. Yep. Well done."
1: That's one thing I love about podcasts. Is I can just like hit that 15-second skip button. Boom boom yeah. boom boom. Yeah. Past them.
0: Yeah, I know I know Jill Rogan makes tons of money on on advertising and uh, you know, this this Fact one fact is not gonna not gonna interfere with his uh, his business there. But uh, I, I gotta say, man, the the Roca watches and all the stuff that Joe sells, I skipped the fucking and and especially yeah. after Spotify it, because it made it way easier. Now I'm just like, nope, nope, nope. It made it easier. Made it easier because the commercials are now in, in individual oh, videos, sure. so you, you know exactly how many times you have to hit fast forward to get to the end of the gotcha. commercial. yeah Um. Uh. Yeah. But, but, but you know what, though, as a podcast listener, I'm not the worst. Yeah. Because I have bought products from, uh, from various advertisers. And, yeah. Daniele Bellelli, uh, did it to me once. And, and on it, of course, I bought from, from Joe. Um, and then Curiosity Stream was also one that I heard about from a podcast that I, think, I bought. I think I did Blue Chew once. Blue so, Chew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. When I, yeah. So, uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, all right. So, where are we going, Kyle? Where are we going today?
1: I don't know, man. Um, I was, uh, you know, I'm a Twitter person. Yep. Uh, so I've been fucking around with Twitter and I've been, I had a good week on Twitter. I've been getting a lot of likes. I've been getting retweets from cool people. Nice. Um, you know, just cool stuff and you know, some stuff that's in the works, you know, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. We'll see if anything comes of it. But then all of a sudden today I go to open my Twitter app and, um, um, I get one of these things that pops down when you get your account suspended or banned, okay? Mm. So, but it says it just says my account is locked. So I have to verify the phone number, but that's that's we we've talked about this right. already. It's tricky because my phone number is banned from Twitter because I've been banned from Twitter before because I say bad words mm. um and I promote unsavory ideas mm. as far as Twitter is concerned. So Yes, but you know, I don't know. I just uh, ho- hopefully I can get it back in order. Uh,
0: that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah, well, I, mean, I hope you, I hope you do. But it is interesting, and you know, that's funny because it's a good tool. Yeah, I mean, you, just, oh, so yeah. you, you're right, and you know how we talked about before several times that I'm a late adopter to think, not late, but I'm not an early adopter to things. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, Twitter's not new, right? And I've been on it once before, and now I'm on it a little bit with two tongues, although not as much as I. am just a busy man. I, I wish yeah, I, yeah. I wish I could spend more time doing it um but uh but i never thought realistically that regular people like i thought it would be like winning the lottery uh, in the sense that regular people could send a message to somebody famous and actually hear back from them, mm-hmm. you know, and, I, and I've sent a few things, you know, I've tagged Jordan Peterson in a few things, and, and I never ever expect that I'll hear back from somebody like that. And you say you get responses back from cool people, and to me, it's like I know, you, I know you put the time in, and you're and you're really active on it, and you're doing stuff I'm not doing, but it's just like I never thought that was even in the realm of possibility for regular people, yes. and that's part of the reason why I kind of thought. Twitter wasn't worth wasn't worth my time.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I don't know. I, ju- I guess it just depends on the things you value. If you're just like a regular person, um, I guess Twitter could be good for like entertainment. You know, right. and I I use it to that you know for that purpose to some extent. Um, but I think that Twitter is a really incredible tool and a lot of other social media things too. But I think Twitter, particularly for me, anyways, it's a great tool for like marketing and like getting, especially marketing just like ideas.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Tell me what you think of this. Uh, this is probably not fair. You're probably not going to agree with me. But as far as like the development of social media is concerned, Twitter is one of the later, later comers to the game.
1: Kind of. It, I mean,
0: well, I mean, it was after Facebook. It was after. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I guess it was before Instagram, but it was after. What was the other Definitely one that, that came out Instagram. before Facebook? Um, MySpace. MySpace, yeah. Okay. So, if you, if you, all things considered, it, it's a relatively late comer in, in, this, in the, the grand scheme. But it's like this, man. If I'm, if I'm looking at something on Facebook or YouTube, I'm not reading the comments. I don't care. yeah the, co- the comments are not entertaining to me, and and you know I I say that like in this matter of fact way. The truth is I don't. I've never really given it much of a shot. See? Yeah, you should. But when I do, um, it's never something that seems worthwhile to me. Now mm-hmm. Twitter seems to be like they've taken the comments it's and they've made the their own thing. social media out of it. Yeah. So the whole thing is the comments that I don't want to read anyway, yeah. because I don't care about all these assholes that have nothing but you know n- negative things to say or trying to incite people that these these uh, you know trolls or whatever. Well, Good. It's what? just, it just. It, I don't know, man. It's distracting, and it, uh, I don't,
1: ha- I don't put much value in it. Yeah, well, there are a lot of cool people on Twitter too. Like, you don't just have to follow a bunch of assholes. I mean, uh, so my last Twitter account. Um, I jumped on this follow train. It's, you know, this thing they do on Twitter where you can, like, get a bunch of followers quickly, you oh. know? Uh, it was a hashtag. It was hashtag no libertarian under 1K. They wanted every libertarian to have 1,000 followers. Mm. Um, I still do not have 1,000 <laughs> followers. But um, I did that. I jumped on, and I got hundreds of followers on that account. Um, I got, I got like, 600, 700 followers from that follow train, and my timeline was just garbage. It was like the worst kind of libertarians, the the libertarians I do not want to hear from. The liber, you know, it, it sucked. It just ruined that Twitter account. <laughs> I'm glad that account got banned because of that. So I want <clears throat> to, excuse me, I want to
0: tell you something, man. You you're, you 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 mentioned this to me about these these terrible libertarians, yeah. uh, in the media or you know the, on social, social media. media
1: more than anything,
0: yeah. And it's funny because I got into the Libertarian Party and joined it in 2006 I believe it was because of my buddy Dave who I've told you about now Dave is the only real life Libertarian that I've ever known he was the first he was <laughs> he was the first one I ever met because he was a guy who like had an LP.org sticker on his car before I ever even heard of a Libertarian Party gotcha he's an OG guy and he's a little older you know, he knows he's in his 40s or whatever he's
1: probably like a Harry Brown guy
0: so I don't even know Harry Brown
1: it's uh he's a, he ran for president an old school an old school oh, yeah.
0: libertarian so but he but he was an awesome guy um you know he didn't have kids or, or a family so his like you know he had time to get into politics he, you know he had he had a reason to like yeah. you know but he but he was the only, like i say the only real life human being that i ever met that was like that and i didn't see anybody uh, like in popular culture until um, parks and rec
1: Ron Swanson.
0: Until Ron Swanson, right? Hell yeah. You know, and uh, and p- people make it out like Ron Swanson's over the top. Um, but not but not really, man. To a libertarian, Ron Swanson is, is not over the top. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, he's over the top in the sense that he's on a fucking TV show, and you have to be a little over the top to be funny. <laughs>
0: to be a character, um, yeah.
1: And, I mean, I do think that on some level, the people who were writing that show were not being kind to libertarians. Like, they were kind of like... Um, Although they weren't being overly mean either, they could have been a lot meaner, but Ron Swanson ended up being a lovable character yeah. for some reason, you know.
0: Yeah, I didn't take Yeah, he did. I, and I wonder if that was a surprise to them.
1: Uh, that's a good question. Well, I think because part it, of it, it was
0: on NBC, wasn't it?
1: I don't. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cuz like same as The Office. Super
0: yeah. super liberal. The super liberal yeah, yeah. At, at everything. So, um, yeah.
1: What was I going to say?
0: I don't know, you distracted me with Peacock.
1: The peak, yeah, well, you know. Um. I, I, yeah, I don't
0: remember what I was gonna say, but uh, something about Ron Swanson. <laughs> oh, we were just talking about uh, the the thread we were talking about was not not meeting real life libertarians. At least, oh, yeah. at least at that point, at that early point, they they didn't exist. And then we then we saw Ron Swanson on TV, and um, you know, that was a welcome a welcome sight for me. Um, but. I've seen people develop into more libertarians. So I've seen people who would have been liberal or would have been conservative, and you're no exception, um, coming around to feeling like you're more of a middle ground person and that the libertarian party might actually be closer. I would not describe myself as a middle ground person. No, but middle ground between, I think libertarian is middle ground between left and right. I don't. Well, the way it was taught to me was... And and what it's become, and this is the whole point, what it's become is a mystery to me because I haven't followed it recently, and when Joe Jorgensen got the nomination, I was not interested in that. See, I mean, when I think about
1: libertarianism, I don't really think about the Libertarian Party, and I know that like Dave Smith is trying to do this thing – and hopefully he's successful. He's, I, you know, you're, I'll,
0: you're talking about running for president. Yeah, as he a wants to. Okay.
1: He wants to get the nomination for president and run for president and spread the message that way.
0: And who's Dave Smith for the people who don't know?
1: <clears throat> Dave Smith is a stand-up comedian and a libertarian podcaster and just like libertarian personality, an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah, what's his podcast called? Do you remember? Part of the problem. Part of the problem. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So Dave
0: Smith. Yep. Go ahead.
1: Um. So he wants to make the libertarian party i guess more um representative of the libertarian movement you know
0: um but i'm just skeptical of how well that's going to work okay so let me pump the brakes for just a second sorry um so i understand what you're saying sort of um but what i so when i when you say libertarian i think of libertarian philosophy which, which says, basically, you can summarize it in one simple way, which is to say that people should have the freedom to do, <coughs> to do whatever they want so long as they're not hurting other people. That's it, that is the, that is the fundamental tenet of libertarianism, that is that whether, whether we're talking about a state, whether we're talking about just a system of philosophy, or how you live in your life, that what that means is perfect freedom, the only restriction being that you, whatever you're doing cannot hurt someone else. <laughs> so um, it's it's voluntary, like like you are very much a fan yeah. of. It's completely voluntary. There's no there's that's it. That is that is the whole thing, kit, kit and caboodle. Yep. So what are the libertarians and the party in social media, the up and comers? What have they done to libertarianism? Who are these people? Because I don't hear them. I don't hear their voices. Um. So you're
1: talking about like the ones
0: that suck, the ones the that ones. you hate. Okay. What, what are they saying? What,
1: what? So I mean, a lot of them. So there's this guy. Actually, you should listen to it. It's pretty good. The uh, the guy who used to be the chair of the chairman of the Libertarian National Party. His name's Nick Sarwak. Um I c- honestly can't believe we're talking about this, um, <laughs> but uh, he is one of these guys. He's like the leader. He's like the the leader of these guys on some level. Um,
0: of the terrible libertarians. The terrible
1: libertarians. Us. Yeah. Um, and so, do you know Tom Woods? Sounds familiar. Tom Woods is a very failed podcaster. Um, but he's like, uh, uh, you know, like what's the word I'm looking for? Like OG libertarian. Like okay, he was good. like, uh, he worked on Ron Paul's campaigns. Awesome. You know, he's just like, he's got a pot. His podcast is very successful. It's a, it's a Michael Malice joke. Um, <laughs> okay. Thanks. But he, uh, so basically Tom Woods, um, you know, These guys in the Mises, uh, not the Mises Caucus, that's part of the Libertarian Party, the Mises Institute, they started getting involved with the Libertarian Party. Sarwak was the chair, and he started, like, doing this kind of shit where it's like everybody in the Libertarian Party needs to sign a pledge saying that I find racism repugnant and I won't be a bigot and stuff like that. And, yeah, exactly. I'm
0: rolling my eyes for the people who can't see me.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's (laughs) just like these kind of tactics. It's like trying to paint people... As racist um, although you know what I, I I don't know I think on some level they might actually believe that like Tom Woods and Dave Smith are racist I don't so, know
0: so I have always wondered. Why libertarian politics never appealed to more young liberals, mm-hmm. like college kids who always who always go ninety nine percent you know liberal progressive, like why they couldn't see the value in a system that does everything the classical liberals did, did valuing personal freedom, you know having no problem with with you know, uh, uh, gay marriage, having no problem with you know legalizing drugs, stuff that young people would support. They get almost at least from my experience, they got they got no traction whatsoever in the libertarian party and i never understood why and now you're telling me that the leader of the party has taken the same tactics that the liberals have taken in exactly the same way seemingly to cozy up to liberals yeah is that is that what's happening they're trying to st-
1: um so i don't know i guess saying cozy up to liberals is a fine way of saying it i think the way that people like Sarwak kind of um, position it in their own minds to make it justifiable is that they want to be taken seriously and have legitimacy. And you can't be taken seriously if you're out there saying mm. the kind of stuff we've
0: said on this podcast. <laughs> so you, so that's funny. So so it's more, it's more a matter of trying to get a platform, trying to be at the table with the big boys yeah. than it is trying to win the hearts of, of liberals, yeah, of yeah. young college kids. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That that seems like a sellout approach, but it also seems like one that's more likely to work. You know, as as unfortunate I guess, I as unfortunate as as that is.
1: I don't think that's true. I think it. I think we're coming to the end of that.
0: Mm, I hope so.
1: I think. Uh, well, I mean, so Sarwak used to be chair. Then some guy named Joe Bishop Henchman became chair, and now he had to step down because they did some crazy shit in New Hampshire and like tried to steal a party, basically. Mm. So. Uh, like, I'm explaining all this shit to you. So, Dave Smith is part of the Mises Caucus. You know, there's caucuses within parties yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, you, you
0: brought that up to me before, the Mises Caucus. Yeah,
1: yeah. so, you know, the Mises Caucus are, like, the type of libertarians that I align with mostly, okay? Um, and that party took over the New Hampshire party through, you know, vote. voting. You know, like, you know, the delegates voted, blah, blah, blah. Nice. Uh, and the people who were in power basically, like, created a like a clone and took like equipment and all kinds of crazy shit. So that dude had to step down. Um, and I mean, I, but I, like I said, I can't believe I'm talking about this because this is like so boring to me. Ever since Dave Smith <laughs> well, has fucking, been into this stuff. All right. No, I mean, it's interesting on some level. Um, I, I like I do, I think that like watching, I don't want to call it a coup, but, you know, like, watching, like, political operations in real time is interesting, you know, on some level. But on another level, it's
0: fucking boring, and I just don't, like, want to be a part of it. So you know what it reminds me of? Like, so you and I have been around long enough, and we've seen politics change. And that when I was a kid, I didn't exactly understand that politics was morphing just like everything else was transforming. But it is. And you, and when I say things like classical liberals, I have to say that because a liberal today is not what a liberal used to be. Yeah. So the party is transforming. And so in the in the early days, the liberals were for um, they, they were for individual freedom. They were for less government involvement. You know, they It was laissez faire. That, that was a that was the original liberal cause. Yeah. Um, and it was social and economic. You know, in, in, in on both sides of the coin. And today it's completely the opposite it's about it's about centralized control of everything it's about um redistribution it's mm-hmm. it's it's nothing it's not even the same party remotely but what's interesting is that in our lifetime in our political lifetime um we're we're seeing that happen in the libertarian party and so I don't maybe this has happened before in the libertarian party and I'm just not aware of it yeah but to see that shift happen it's almost like it's almost like having the retrospect to look back at how music transforms how genres of music transform we're yeah. just we're just watching it play out in politics is fucking weird man i uh, that
1: you yep. can't talk <laughs> uh, that makes me think of something i've been seeing going been seeing going around twitter lately not that i can see anything on twitter right now but it's uh this little saying and i forget where i first saw it but it's that any organization that is not explicitly right-wing will eventually become progressive because that's just how it fucking works, you Mm,
0: know? Yeah. Um,
1: And that seems true on some
0: level. It does seem true on some level, and it seems like it's being pushed along, like we've said before, and many other people have said, by a fairly small percentage of noisy people. Mm -hmm. And it's completely baffling and terrifying to me because it, and I hate to be like dramatic, but I'm going to be, uh, it reminds me of, like, um, there was a word that they used uh, in the history books to talk about what um, what how the world powers handled Hitler after the First World War was over. Uh, what did they call it? Damn, I can't remember. There's a phrase. I'm just trying to think back to, like, eighth grade social studies. But there's a phrase that basically when the Nazis said, look um germany's been decimated because of the first world war and all the all the money that the rest of europe is taking from them as a reparations and all this stuff that you know they're in bad economic ways that the people have lost their spirit and somebody's got to do something about this and uh they let they allowed hitler to take over Czechoslovakia to take over, you know, uh, Poland, uh, well, Poland was the last straw, yeah. but, but taking over all of these German speaking countries and doing nothing about it because they're putting their hands up and saying, we would rather not start another world war. The first one was bad enough. We're just going to let Hitler do a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit more and a little bit more sure. until they couldn't say no anymore. Yeah, And that's what I, that's what I see happening, playing out in politics right now with Um, Well coming Coming from the left And I know it's happening On both sides I don't want to be unfair But all the stuff That seems obvious to me That pisses me off So so bad Is Is all of the Manipulation of Ideas and words That that are coming From the left That that make me And my children Feel guilty About the About the color Of the skin That they were born into Without any choice Of their own And shit like that Yeah uh, and just just terrible redistribution and, and spending to the point where, you you know, you think inflation is a problem now. You know, I have no idea what to expect 10 years from now. Yeah. Like, like I have no idea. Oh, it's fuck. very, very scary, yeah. man. I don't know where I was going with this rant. I just kept going and going, and here we are.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm, you know, I was thinking
0: that, um I don't know what I was thinking. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what you were thinking either. Um, but basically, I I think that so many of these ideas circle around stuff that we've talked about before, and I don't think I understand it very well. I don't understand where my my beliefs fall exactly, and where all of the emotion is coming from when we talk about individualism and collectivism. So this is this to me is is at the heart of all of this. It's at the heart of the postmodern thing that I don't quite understand. It's at the heart of our political debate. It's at the, it's at the heart of everything. Yeah. Um, the, the there's a, there's an idea and a very american idea that says human beings uh, have some sort of divinity and that our individuality is supposed to be preserved our individual freedom is supposed to be preserved that we're supposed to be able to say what we want and do what we want and so and so that we can bring beautiful and useful things into the world that's what america does you know at least <laughs> at least historically um, you know, we brought you Coca Cola and the automobile and all kinds of beautiful things, guys. Um, and and then there's this collectivist idea, which is more on the uh, on the progressive side of the spectrum, which is which is to to not focus on the individual, to not focus on individual freedom and individual choice, but to focus on what we can accomplish if we disregard those things, like the Chinese model. What can we accomplish if we <laughs> if we pretend that the individual is meaningless and and we instead adopt adopt the identity as a nation? Now we're a big machine. Mm-hmm. What can we do as a billion people machine in China? Well, just about anything you set your mind to. What can an, an individual in China do? Nothing. Yep. They can jump off the, the the factory that they work at, right? So. Um, we, we we've talked about there being value on both sides of the argument on the individual side and on the collective side but I'm really I'm really not sure where I land on this man I'm a I'm a fan of collectivism uh,
1: as long as it's voluntary uh, that you know like I'm sure again no surprise coming from me that that's kind of where it breaks down for me but I don't have a problem working with people I don't have a problem you know acting in unison with other people to accomplish a goal that's great that's beautiful um what I don't
0: like is being forced to work with people. Sure. But here's the question. Here's the question. This is, this is a real question, but it's impossible to answer. Do we'll you, see about that. Do you believe that, that as a society, that human beings, no, no, as a species, let's say, that human beings are an organism as a species? it's
1: a good question. Uh, like one organism, like one, like like well, like that, like the giant fungus thing in like uh,
0: the Pacific Northwest. It's like a, a mushroom patch. Yeah, like imagine, imagine you're, imagine you're floating up in space far enough above us yeah. to see the actions of the planet. You know, yeah. and the human beings doing what we're doing it would be like watching ants, you know, uh, yeah. b- build their nest or something. Like on some level, but i don't think of ants
1: as one ant. But do you think that ants as a colony have one will? Maybe.
0: Very, and that, and probably. I mean, so i know it's more a, go ahead. Uh, so ideas are more complicated than it were, were than i'm making it right now. Sure. So i i get this picture in my head like a human body. So you can imagine all of the human race as like a human body. Just imagine that. Yeah. And some of those parts are not going to be working well, some of those parts are going to have their own ideas. They're going to be doing stuff that, that isn't helpful. The and, shithole countries. And, <laughs> well, that's the cancer in your body. That's the sure. disease in your body. But the rest of your body is still kind of working towards some general purpose. And it seems like, it seems like the, the population, the human species have a will. If you could observe it over a long enough period of time and from a far enough distance, you would see them seemingly doing something. Built, yeah. Building civilization, b- developing culture, getting increasingly more complex. Like we don't know what we're doing as individuals. We don't know what we're doing. We, we don't know what we're doing collectively as individuals, but we're doing something. So what the fuck is that something?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, um, and I do think that like with the ants and with people, um, maybe the individual ant does have its own individual will. But it just so happens that that will like aligns perfectly with the collective, you know.
0: Um, C- correct. So my question to that is: if that's the case, is it is it the ants' will, or is it the collective's will? That's if a they're good if question. they're if they're indistinguishable, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Man. Well, I, I mean, know. feel
1: like that all ties into, on some level, the way that we think about existence and reality. That like, I mean, there's I don't I mean I think that I per what am I trying to say? I perceive a huge difference between, like, you and I and me and this table and me and this pen. Right. But oh, I don't know how true that is, you know? I mean, it's like what? I'm an individual. That's an individual thing. But maybe we're a a coll- I mean, it's a collective. It's all so, just one big suit. Right.
0: So if it were possible, I'm just – obviously, there's no – really, there's no way of answering this question. But it's there's definitely a way to see the human species as though it were a unit, as though it were – a wholeness as though it were a, you know, one thing. Yeah. Um, you could look at it that way. So my, so I guess what I'm wondering is if there's legitimacy in that idea, um, th- there's a question there. Is it more important what we're doing individually or is it more important what we're doing collectively? And, you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's an argument there that says those are inter interconnected yeah. and you can't exactly separate sure. one from the other, but as a leader of a state, and you're looking at something like China versus the United States, those are the, those are the different perspectives. And ma- you know, maybe it's not as true today in the U.S., but you can imagine like in, the, in, in the, beginning, the beginning of our country, the birth of our country, we were very much looking at what the individual's um, lives were going to be like and what the government's role was going to be in promoting their liberty, their liberty. And then you've got the communist state that, that looks at the individuals as part, part of a machine and like I say, there's there seems to be legitimacy in both of those And it, it's just interesting I can't tell you where I fall on that It's complicated I feel more drawn towards the individual side But I have been but I grew up in America I love hearing you say that Because I just watched
1: uh, this video It was Michael Malice on Lex Friedman's podcast Ooh, I like both of those two. And they had on this guy named Yaron Brook Do you know who that no. is? He's the head of the Ayn Rand Institute I'm a fan And he's a fucking moron. Oh, that's that's rough. I shouldn't say that. But the way that you were just talking about communism, about how it's like, I don't know how I feel about it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like um, that is not how he is. And honestly, I get the impression that that's not how Rand was either. I get the feeling that like I love Ayn Rand. She has a lot of great ideas, but I have a feeling I might not have liked her as a person.
0: Oh, Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Ayn Rand strikes me as one of those people that she strikes me as one of those people that's ma- maniacally arrogant, actually. Sure. But because she's so sure of, of what she believes because yeah. she's thought about it so much. Yeah. But to me, there, and I've, I don't know if we talked about this last time or not, but uh, there's something special about an Ayn Rand hero mm-hmm. that I love so much. I can't exactly explain to you why. I think it's because I wish I could be like one um, and have never been. And if and if you've never read if you've never read an Ayn Rand book before, for the people listening, um, uh, what, what are the what are the two the the Atlas Shrugged and um, Fountainhead. the Fountainhead, the, the superior the big, the big book ones. I believe,
1: the Fountainhead.
0: And she wrote other stuff, but those are like fictional books that are that contain her philosophy. They embody her. The characters embody her philosophy. The heroic ones. Yeah. And what what makes them heroic is that they're one hundred percent sure in in their goals and their beliefs. That they're that it's impossible for them to uh, that they can defend them perfectly because they believe them perfectly and they embody them perfectly and it's like to hell with everything any obstacle that comes my way I'm gonna push through and succeed all by myself yeah and it's something it's I mean literally it's making I got goosebumps oh, yeah. on yeah. my hand on my arms I understand completely why it's doing it to you
1: and it does it to me I love the Fountainhead uh, Howard Rourke is Howard a bad motherfucker Rourke. okay. Uh, that being said, that's a fictional book. Yep. And that was a hero. That was a archetypal hero.
0: A meta hero, as Jordan Peterson would say. And
1: <laughs> as badass as Ayn Rand was, Ayn Rand was not an archetypal hero. She was a human being made of flesh and blood. And it's like, you can't go through life acting like you know everything. You know what I mean? And uh, another point where I kind of break off from Rand is her philosophy is called objectivism. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't know that I believe in objective reality. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I understand, I believe that, uh, we have to go based on the best information that we have, you know, we have to, the information that we take in, we have, you know, it's, it's all we've got. We got to use it. True. That being said, I'm not 100% sure that that information is perfect. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. I just, uh, that aspect of objectivism, I don't like. So, that's something that I picked up from Thaddeus Russell, by the way. Yeah. And when it fir- when it like was first laid out to me like that, I was like pure Rand. You know, I was like, oh, I'm Rand, that's, <laughs> you know, that's what it is for me. And then I, at first it was like, whoa, you know, I was like kind of offensive for a second. But then it's like, no, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: It's so funny, man, because I feel that way a lot. And I think that's a sign of maturity, is to notice yourself reacting Instinctively, one way or the other, but then catching yourself and, and, and saying, look, you haven't considered this. You're just reacting. Mm-hmm. Like, listen to what the idea is. Think about it. Then decide how you feel. Don't just, don't just uh, you know, immediately get violently one way or the other. And yeah. I, I do that all the time, but I'm trying to catch myself and uh, be better about that.
1: I do that, too. I, I mean, um, I, I've been trying to get better, too, but I do it for sure.
0: So I think there's a parallel between Ayn Rand heroes mm-hmm. and... Jordan Peterson talking about the hero's story and, like, mythological heroes. Sure. So I agree with you in the sense that um, Howard Rourke is not a real person and, in fact, was a rapist in the book, kind of. Kind of, yeah. Um, so, you know, not even, not even necessarily a good person. But Ayn Rand puts that in a way where it's like the man took what he wanted and somebody who can take what they want is an admirable person, like somebody who has the ability to, to uh, manifest what they want in their lives
1: that's the way that you just put that um, you said it, a man takes what he wants you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, and in the book it is like kind of rape but at the same time it's definitely kind of portrayed that Dominique wants it oh you know bad yeah so it's not rape I mean I don't under I don't know how to mm. you know
0: well it's rape in the sense that he came through her window uninvited True, and, sure. and had sex with her without saying much ahead of time but um, the but Ayn Rand, and you can tell this is a little bit of a insight into her, her personal kink, actually, <clears throat> and she's definitely like a buttoned-up type of a person yeah. from Eastern Europe who yeah. doesn't who doesn't communicate well. She communicates well, so I won't say that. But the kind of person she that got an accent, the kind of person sure. that you, I don't imagine she's going to be talking intimately about her sex life. <laughs> but in the book, she said, you know, she definitely makes it out like uh, Dominique was sexually excited and pleasantly surprised that this masculine figure showed up and took what what he wanted from her yeah and that and and again i don't this is a weird like we'll have to get we'll have to get a woman on the on the episode to talk about this because there's definitely women who will talk about rape fantasies and domination and things like that i mean there's whole there's whole catalogs of porn about you know domination and all kinds of things that go along with that just ask bernie sanders um, I don't, I don't know that story, so I have to talk about that. <laughs> right. But, uh, um, but the point is, uh, I think that um, Ayn Rand heroes aren't like you say aren't real people, but it's kind of like Jesus. Sure. Jesus isn't a real person. Yeah. Like, G- like Jesus is somebody who never sinned, according to the Bible, and human beings can never live that way. It's impossible. So Jesus is not a real person in the sense that you can't be sinless like, like, like the person of Jesus. Yeah. But like Jesus and like Howard Rourke. You can look at the example of, of, a, of a hero of somebody who boldly and confidently acts in the world even with with, with incomplete information you know takes risks and acts in the world and, ex, and ex, exerts their will and bends the world to them to themselves. yeah there's something like that that you can look at just like Jesus and you can admire it and you can want to be like it even though it's impossible to be like Jesus, let's say. I look at I look at the, the, the mythological story of the hero. And the, and the way Ayn Rand paints her heroes, I look at them in the same exact way. As a symbol of admiration that there's something in the Howard Rourke that, is, that could benefit you if you embody it. Something like that.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting that... I don't know. I guess... I was going to say that you know in the Bible... Jesus never really comes off as like condescending, you know what I mean? True. Um, for some reason, um, but for some reason, like to me, I don't know. I was, I don't know if Howard Roark comes off as condescending. Well, yeah, no, he definitely does on some level. Yeah. Um, but he's condescending towards people who, in my opinion. Deserve to be condescended, yeah, like uh, Keating. You know, yeah. Um, you
0: remember the characters way better than me, by the way. Oh, dude, that's
1: <laughs> that was like, I mean, a huge book for me. You know, I mean, yeah. I know it was for you too, but yeah, it's like I really took my time on that one, and
0: um, well, I, I get them confused when I when I go back and try to remember because it's been so long between uh, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, yeah. Like, because well, because the characters, the heroes, are basically carbon copies of each very other, very
1: similar, and yeah. the
0: women, Dominique, and who's the who's the other one, um, Dagny Taggart, yes. Da- they could basically be carbon, carbon copies. It's like a Dan Brown book. Yeah. Every Dan Brown book has got the same characters in it. You yeah. Know? I, I mean, so I love The Fountainhead. Don't
1: necessarily love Atlas Shrugged as much. Uh, but I think that she kind of stopped writing fiction because she was she was a philosopher. She was not really a novelist, you know what I mean? Right. You could tell, like, I mean, each book is like this fucking thick. Yeah. She just wasn't that... Um concise. I feel like, you know, mm. we talked about Anne Rice the other week. I feel like Anne Rice is out of way a little bit too. Like she is. bitch just rambles, you know? <laughs> it's like it, it's eloquent, it's nice, but man, you could have cut like 3 pages out of yep. this chapter.
0: No, I agree with you. Somebody like Anne Rice for those who don't know, she's the the lady who wrote the vampire books that became the Interview the Vampire movie and the Queen of the Damned movie and so forth. Um, classic vampire horror author Yeah, from- really
1: talented, creative Awesome writer.
0: Yep. She goes back to the, like, the late 70s all the way up to the present. and yep. So she's a prolific author. But she's like that. She, she'll take four pages to talk about a guy walking into a room. And I'm not, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm not exaggerating. But, but when I was a kid and I started reading, it was that type of writing that allowed me to paint the, the picture so well in my head that allowed me to enjoy reading. And oh, I, and okay. I, I agree with you that I would if it were me I would cut a lot of that shit out, yeah. but if it wasn't for that I don't know that I that was the first book that ever got me to enjoy reading, and it was because I could paint that picture so well.
1: That's crazy. And I
0: have a hard time visualizing stuff ment- mentally.
1: We started reading that up here. We did, yeah. You do you remember? Do you did you start with Interview or did you start with Vampire Lestat? You
0: started with Lestat. I, st- I started with Vampire. Okay. In fact, I've to this day never read Interview with the Vampire. Oh, OK, you you started reading that yeah, one. Yeah. I started reading the sequel, but I'd seen the movie before. So yeah, I just sure. felt like, you know, and it was well done. And Anne Rice was involved with the movie where she wasn't really involved with Queen of the Damned. And it shows.
1: Oh, yeah. The uh, Interview with the Vampire is one of the better movie adaptation or book adaptations. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So R.I.P. to Aaliyah, who was in who was in uh, Queen, of the, Queen of the Damned, but a terrible movie. Yeah. Terrible. And if you're listening, you never should have let that happen. All right. Uh,
1: <laughs> who, what the fuck were we talking about? Oh, right. Anne Rice. That's
0: what Well, right. we were talking about heroes no, and all that.
1: A- Rand, not Anne Rice. Yeah, yeah. Cl- similar names threw me off there. Mm. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Anne Rice, Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. That's, all, that's about all I have to say. Oh, so I'll just touch back on that You're On Brook podcast. You should watch it. He is talking about communism as if it is inherently evil. Okay? And I mean... On some level, I do kind of understand where he's coming from. That being said, if people want to try communism, I, you know, like go for it. I and maybe it can work. Like we were talking last week about like decentralization, like small units. Maybe it can work. You know, on, um, on a
0: small enough scale. And you, just the yeah.
1: way that he, he, it is maniacally arrogant the way he's talking about it. And malice is there. And he's, you know, he starts bringing up this lady Emma Goldman. Do you know who that is? No. She's a like an old school anarcho-communist. She was uh, around when Lenin was coming to power, oh. and she was in America, and they deported her to Russia mm. for being an outspoken anarcho-communist. And uh, really, yeah, she was there, and she was nothing but critical of Lenin. Um, it's like you just, you know, it's like you're doing exactly the stuff that you were talking about, you know, them doing before you came to oh, power. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, basically. It, basically, the point is that, dude, you're on Brooke. It's black and white. You know, there's no, it, you know, it just drives me nuts that kind of thing. So
0: I I, can, I, can, I love that you have that instinct, and I love that you bring it up to me because mm-hmm. I don't always, I don't always see when I do that. Yeah. But one of the, one of the things that I have done that with is postmodernism. Okay. And it's because Jordan Peterson speaks very poor, low of it, and because I haven't studied it, and because I respect Jordan's opinion, and shame on me. I mean, I have said on the podcast many times. How terrible it is that people don't want to do anything hard to the point where they will let the world fall apart, so long as they don't have to lift a finger. And that's how I feel when it comes to postmodernism. That I've always been more of a classical guy. I, I've always put more uh, value on the most on the, on the ancient. For some reason, I can't exactly explain. Yeah. So someone like Plato to me is is you know the end all and be all of philosophy. Like and people have said that. Everything is a footnote to Plato. Mm-hmm. Pla- Plato did all of the thinking that, that needed to be done, and everybody else, the Nietzsche's and the John Paul Sartres of the world and all of the, the most brilliant thinkers have only elucidated components of what Plato has already said. And I, there's a part of me that, for some reason, wants to believe that. Yeah. I've always been that way. Like I told you when we started talking about religion, like thinking I could get to the truth if I could only find the beginning of it. If I could just get back to the oldest religion. And so that's how I felt about philosophy and the idea that that post-structuralism and post-modernism, who've, who've, who basically came onto the scene relatively recently in modern times, that this is, is going to be the height of, of philosophical thought. Like I thought, you know, well, you know, if, if, if Nietzsche is a footnote to Plato, then Derrida is a footnote to, you know, what? You know, he's yeah. it's a, it's a flea on the back of the footnote to Plato. And so I never, I never gave it, it the attention it deserves. And I, and when Jordan Peterson said, "Look, all mm-hmm. of these postmodern ideas have corrupted the cultures uh, of the Western world to the point where they're accepting communism with open arms and allowing you know hundreds of of thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of people to die," um, that that it wasn't worth my time to explore. Yeah. And so I wrote it off with a blank check, and I feel like that was irresponsible of me and not fair. To me or to, or to anybody anybody else for that matter And you're the person The only person who ever said Like look man you might be writing this off um, A little bit too quickly There might be something worthwhile And so now I'm actually starting to look at that a little bit nice. I haven't I haven't done it yet I bought a book by a guy named uh, um, Giles or Giles Deleuze Who was one of those French guys that came from the Deleuze That's how they say it <laughs> he wrote. He wrote a book called Difference and Repetition, and apparently, it's like, apparently, it's awesome. Um, it, it's up my alley. Apparently, as far as like ontology goes, like the philosophers that talk about the beginning and how things got here, and talk about like religious type of ideas, that he's one of those guys that did that, and uh, uh, they make it out like that book is is like the companion to Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, which is like one of the most famous books of philosophy. So I'm starting to bore myself, so I'll get off the philosophical train. Well,
1: you're not boring me. I think that um, I like that I have been that for you. That's awesome. I, I think that I want to be that for more people. And the people who have been that for me, Uh, are some podcasts that I highly recommend people listen to. Sounds like
0: Thaddeus is one of them. Thaddeus
1: is definitely one of them. Huge, huge influence on the way that I think. And honestly, when you're talking about just interesting interviews... I mean, that dude has, hun- I think, hundreds at this point of interviews with just, like, the most interesting people that you hmm. wouldn't maybe hear of otherwise.
0: So, uh, for those who don't know, we're, t- we're talking about Thaddeus Russell again, who wrote a book called The Renegade History of the United States, and he's got a podcast called...
1: Uh, Unregistered. Unregistered, the Unregistered okay. Podcast.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so, yeah, definitely listen to that. Another guy, huge influence... Is uh, And I've told you about his podcast before It's called the Free Man Beyond the Wall Podcast Mm. His name is Pete Quinonez Um, I think I pronounced that right I don't know Um, But that guy's great You should listen to that podcast And especially like Because he's a very libertarian minded person And If you're interested in hearing people who know who understand it talk about like the ins and the outs of like different branches of libertarian philosophy that's a great podcast to listen to um and also different like branches of philosophy too not just libertarianism
0: yeah interesting so i'm going to try to remember what things that specifically that you've challenged me on over the years but since you're bringing up other people that you listen to that have done that for you and you were just talking a little bit about communism like like You know, when the guy talks like you can write it off completely, um, there that might be a mistake. So, like, what can you think of specific examples of these people that they said something that you were challenged you in such a way that you never considered it before, and then and then changed your mind?
1: So Thaddeus for me is like the same as I was for you with postmodernism. Like before, I heard Thaddeus Russell talk extensively about postmodernism. I was in the exact same boat as you were. Jordan Peterson said it was dumb, so it's dumb. Um. So, I heard him talk about it, and he, I mean, he went on Molyneux and talked about it. Uh, I've heard him talk about it a few different places, and I think that some of the people that he has debated about it uh, with have made good points. It's not like there's no, no criticism of postmodernism, you know, but... What I appreciate about Thaddeus Russell is that it's not garbage, you know. Like you, just because you think that like some people are using it mm. um, in ways that are not, are bad, doesn't mean that it's bad altogether. Yeah, and that's something that uh, I take from Pete Quinones. It's like I've told you before that like I I I'll, I'll read Lenin because if Lenin has a good idea, I want to use it. Yeah, man. Um, and that's like a Pete Quinones. The, uh, that's a big influence from him. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, even if it's something you disagree with, you think you want to know, you should want to know the ins and outs of it. You, you should you should want to know it so that you can combat it if you have to. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times people, it's easier. And that's just, like I said, one of the easy thing. it's the easy route. It's easier to just write it off. Yeah. Even if you don't really understand why you're, you're writing it off, because then you free yourself of the, from the obligation to have to freaking read about it. Yeah. So I've been doing that a little bit like today, as far as postmodernism goes, trying to understand what, what in general it means. And I think that I'm, I'm more interested in the philosophical postmodernism, but apparently it represents a cultural tra- change, meaning that you see it pop up everywhere. And w- the one th- example that I read that caught me, uh, that I thought I'd bring up because it's so- something that you like, is Tarantino. Okay. So they specifically said that Quentin Tarantino's movies, in particular Pulp Fiction, that that movie was postmodern. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? And they, and they explain um, that that movie, it doesn't follow the traditional pattern of a movie. It doesn't follow the traditional pattern of a, of a, of a story the way that you normally see mm-hmm. them. And they, so it surprises you. So it's like the pattern that it follows is, is untraditional. And somehow that's what postmodernism is about. It's about taking things from a different perspective, and that and that's where this word um, deconstruction and construction come in, which I don't I don't understand entirely. I wish I I did better, but it's this idea that you can de you can deconstruct ideas into um, into like its base parts. Mm-hmm. You can see how they interact with one another. In the, in the context of that argument or that idea, and somehow that's the important thing. It's the interaction between these these opposed posing ideas or parts of ideas that is meaningful. Um, and I don't exactly understand that. Yeah, uh, I don't know what what your gist has been trying to figure out what that um, means.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, postmodernism. I have a hard time talking about it because it's uh I mean, I don't, I, I, don't understand it that, that well either. You know, I've been looking into it, but you know, like a lot of these philosophies, they're, I mean, they're kind of complex, and unless you have the time to like really dig into it, right? Um,
0: it, I mean, it's just difficult. So it's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, absolutely, but any, I have a problem with the isms so much, sure, because I, because I, I have a, just like with communism, man, I have a mixed feeling about it, where. You know, it's like you in, you can invent a word, and with that new word, you can you can kind of invent a new idea. Um, and so, I think that's important. Like, I don't want to stop that. I don't want to stop people from like, you know, because the more like the more words we have at our disposal, the more like complicated we can think, the more sophisticated we can think. And I believe that's true. It's like you have the words, you have you have tools at your disposal to to put them together in different ways to construct new meaning. And when you construct new meaning, you kind of construct new things in the world, new ideas that you can play around with, new possibilities. It's very important. But at the same time, I reject very, very passionately when politicians invent new words like, well, like woke or or like rape culture. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you're inventing these these words that now you have to fill in the meaning as though it existed before the word, but it didn't like let's talk about rape culture for a second <coughs> that that's a phrase that's come up uh, that that they both of those words existed in the lexicon we uh, we know what rape means we know what culture means mm. but we never fucking ever Kyle had a word called rape culture that meant anything yeah. and now suddenly and now suddenly it means something yeah. And and you're using it, and the news is using it, and fucking uh, Oxford Oxford uh, English Dictionary has no idea if, until a couple years down the road when they add that word to the lexicon that it even exists. It doesn't actually mean anything. That's that's my point, yeah. man. It's like it's like you use the word rape, okay? People people, you know, ha, behave criminally, and this is one way which in which they do it. But then you say rape culture. And you have to now fill in what this means. What, what does it mean? So I'll give you my best crack at it. Sure. What, what it. rape culture means is that there's components to the way we live our lives in this particular spot in time that uh, makes it more likely for a certain type of person to rape. And and you hear them tell tell you that when they when they say oh the guy from the lacrosse team that had a 4.0 GPA and came from a rich family that that that, that guy is, is oh he's guilty well, he, was, yeah. he was he was yeah. he was accused and he's oh he's more likely to be guilty because he's he grew up privileged and you know and so there's this thing called <laughs> there's this thing called rape culture that he participates in yeah what mm-hmm. are you fucking kidding me this is my point that this idea. That this that this guy who you know may or may not have made this criminal decision to rape somebody, is now is now doing so not because he made an immoral decision himself, but because he somehow is participating in a culture that makes it more likely that he will. Yeah. What does that What does that mean, man? And so that whole idea that the culture made him do it has has been invented because the word rape culture has been invented.
1: Well, I mean. I think that you can use culture to affect the behavior of people. I think that it's po- it's a possibility that you could create a true rape culture. You know, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's not rape cultures that exist in the world today. You know, I think about um,
0: some of the shit that goes on in the this, Middle so East. So this is my point. Yeah. This, whole, this whole conversation, that tirade that you're going off in right now about yeah. rape culture... Um, we wouldn't. You wouldn't even be having those thoughts if the word rape culture hadn't 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 appeared on the news one day and in your head. Okay. Because because what you're saying is that there are places in the world where people rape more and where it's more acceptable. Yeah. And what what I'm saying is that calling that rape culture is nonsense. I, I, what I'm saying is you can say there are, there are people in the world that are that are do, raping more more than than other people and there are reasons for it. What I'm saying is that the culture has nothing to do with it. We, I don't know that, that that's true. What, but, so then we have to ask the question. Now we're going to get into a Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris conversation, mm-hmm. which people may or may not like. Yeah. What is culture? That's the question that I'm asking. Because if you can say that culture can be applied to a small group of people who are raping, and then, and then you can also say that culture applies to everybody in the world or everybody in the country or everybody in your state or everybody in your, whatever, in your community, we're talking about two very different things and calling them both culture. And that's my problem. No
1: I don't I don't know that I agree with you I think that cultures can influence and direct the behavior of people. I think that that is obviously true. Um, I think that you know like the culture here in America young people are more likely to listen to rap you know mm-hmm. in other countries I mean it's maybe maybe still some kind of rap but it's like you know French rap or right. you know the different kind
0: of music. So music is a part of culture. I agree with you on that. Sure. Is Activity. rape is rape a part of culture?
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe. Why why is it like hard for you to think that rape could be a part of culture? Like, it, think about like. Um, well,
0: the, because the question is, what is culture? And neither of us have answered that about, question. What about like ritualistic rape? So that's the question. What is culture? Can culture? Can, so culture is a guiding is a guiding principle, and I agree with you in, in the sense that that guiding principle can. I don't know if I want to use the word manipulate, but guide people's behavior because the culture shows you basically how people have behaved in the past. Mm-hmm. And so it tells you how it's acceptable for you to behave. It, yeah. also, it also tells you what's not acceptable when you behave in a, in a way that the culture doesn't agree with, right? So if you, behave, if you behave in the ways that the culture has behaved in the past and, and, and went well, those are the behaviors that you're that you're allowed to do. Okay, and if you do something that, that the culture uh, that happened in the culture that wasn't good, people are going to say those behaviors you shouldn't do. So rape is one of those things that, as a culture, we say you shouldn't do, and then all of a sudden we turn around and say, "Oh no, we have rape culture here." So it's like well, it's, I'm not talking about
1: here, but go ahead. Well, I mean, finish your thought. Yeah, no.
0: Well, basically, the conclusion here is that there seems to be this weird thing happening. Where we, where we pretend that culture is this overarching thing that governs everybody, and then we use the same word to say, oh no, it's also this thing that governs only these people. Rape culture governs these people who, who rape, but not
1: everybody. I see. I think another way to think of it is that, like, I think you even said this earlier. I, like, there are cultures in the world who their, you know, the prevailing attitudes towards... You know, whatever women, sex, whatever, for whatever reasons, their culture just is like not as hard on rape. They just like don't think it's that big of a deal. So yeah, yeah sure. No, I, I can I can understand that,
0: and I know the examples. Like I, I get
1: you. Does it make more sense to say instead of calling it rape culture, uh, to say their culture is more
0: permissive of rape? Is that like a more true statement? Um, well, I think my I think where my Reluctance comes is to call it culture at all. It's the 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 idea is um, what is the idea? Um, <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying is when you when you talk to a humanities professor and you say what is culture, they're going to tell you it's things like the art that we produce. The music that we produce, the way that we live our lives, the stories we tell—that's um, key, right there. The way
1: that we live our lives. Yes. Okay. Yes. So some people live their lives by raping people. I mean, you right? Know what I- right. But that is countercultural. It's not part of the not, culture. No, no, no. In certain cultures, it might not be countercultural. In certain cultures, it might be cultural.
0: And in that case, in that example, I'm following you. I agree. In that case, I'm going to say that the word rape in those cultures is as foreign to them as rape culture is to me. That if you said, mm-hmm. if you went to some place, you know, a primitive place in the Middle East where, sure. where women are married at age of nine and don't have a choice, mm-hmm. if you asked a woman like that, um, if you explained to her the concept of rape, I, what I'm saying is she wouldn't understand what you meant. So they don't, even, they don't even have the idea uh, exactly okay. in exactly I mean, the same way. I see what you're saying. I, I don't, um, and I feel like we're having a postmodern conversation right now, yeah, yeah. but I don't understand it.
1: It's hard. I mean, it's you know, I,
0: I wish I had somebody here who could, who could guide this conversation yeah. because we're talking about the meaning of words and I always get upset about the manipulation of words, especially from politicians. I feel like it's like, I feel like it's uh, violence. Yeah. You're doing violence to my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And, and, but I also disagree with the idea that that words are violence or thoughts are violence. Yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I that is a weird, like a weird, like place where it rubs up against each other in a way that's like I don't know what side I'm on. I don't
0: know what side I'm on either. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, and this this is tied to this collectivism individualism topic, where where I want instinctively to agree that the individual is the locus of everything. And that if I do something wrong, I'm guilty of it. I'm a raper if I if I rape somebody, I'm right? Raper. I'm a raper if I rape somebody. I'm not I'm not a victim of rape culture. I'm not a I'm not a participant in rape culture. It's not a part of the culture is not to blame for it. I am to blame for it if I did that thing. So I I violently agree with what I'm saying to you right now. Sure. But at the same time, I completely understand your point about putting ourselves in a different culture and trying to think about rape in a situation where it's commonplace. I don't know... I don't know how to make sense of that.
1: Yeah. Um, do you think... I mean... So I, I think that... I have a problem with the idea of rape culture because... I mean, I just look at, like, the way America operates and it seems so obvious that we don't. You know, like, it seems... who You ask a person, who are the most repugnant people in the world? It's like child molesters, rapists, murderers, yep, exactly, you know? Exactly. Um, so... You know uh, it just seems so fucking clear that we don't have anything resembling whatever a rape culture is, you know
0: yes, so you, you're right, you're right. so if I was trying to imagine like this primitive tribal situation where women had no choice in sex and uh, rape was was normal and in fact whatever word they would use for it is completely respectable and um, you know a, a you know an ancient traditional part of their way of life. And yeah. it's normal and, you know, accepted yeah. and, you know, what I mean? I can imagine a place like that. Yeah. And I would call and I would probably agree with you that we could call that culture some type of a rape culture. I do. But I see I know what you're
1: saying, too. We can call it that from the outside, from looking the out. outside. Yes. Yeah. And yes, from the inside looking out. And that's like I mean, I'm glad that that finally clicked into place for me because that's like I've said before, that is. You know, a, a huge part of why I am, you know, I an anarchist, I guess. You know, uh, is that I don't know. Like, I'm not a part of your culture. I don't know what you're doing. Mm. Uh, I don't know. You know, I can look at the in from the outside and go, that seems fucked up. You know, but I mean, what? Am, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go kill you. You know, I'm going to go. I like. I don't know. It just
0: doesn't seem. So here's an interesting question. So we. So we can. We can agree that cultures vary; that there's more than one culture per se in the world, mm-hmm. and we have this idea that it's beneficial for us to expose each other, one another, to different cultures because people live differently in, in different ways, and we might find value in the way they think and live. And if we could all know about how people live um, all over the world, that we can actually take little gems from that, like, oh, the the Scandinavians do this really well, and the and the Japanese do this. Really well. Maybe we can take these back. That's the idea of the American melting pot. Mm -hmm. By the way, I want to ask you about American culture too. So, keep that on your radar. All
1: right. Um, White people
0: don't have culture. So you know. Oh God. talk, (laughs) Talk about that. Uh, okay, wh- where was I going? I got derailed American culture? Be- before that Oh, I don't know <laughs> I've lost the thread too Well, let's talk about American culture Because that's yeah. another thing That you hear people say Yeah And then you can imagine that With, with 50 states You've got 50 very different More than 50, I'm sure yeah, But yeah. certainly 50 different ways of life And uh, and different subcultures or something um, you know, So even talking about an American culture As if there's one American culture Is difficult Yeah You know? For sure, and and it's and maybe it's looking at all of the different ways that we are Americans. You know, like the Texas Longhorn style American, and the and the you know the the Connecticut businessman American, and yeah. the and the and the farmer from you know wherever Idaho, and you, and you you, t- you you take all of those different ways of life as a composite, and you yeah. say this is American American culture. Like yeah. I don't, what does it even mean?
1: It's weird. It's very weird, and it makes me. I mean, I already resent, like, you know, we talked last podcast about wanting, like, decentralization. Like, I I don't even know. If we broke the America up, there's this thing. Uh, this isn't talking about America. I think this is talking about the entire world. I, I think Hans-Hermann Hoppe said it, that it would be ideal if we could break down the world's population and countries, city-states into 10,000 Lichtensteins. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, you know... Even in that situation, I, I mean, uh, I, there's going to be areas that you don't like. You know, I mean, I don't know. I I, I kind of like lost the thread on. No, that, that's okay because but...
0: I picked up my my old one. All right, so all here right. we go. I was talking about benefiting from other cultures, right? Yes. But then, I, but then I was trying to imagine like, um, what happens if two cultures come into contact with each other? Like, if if you just put yourself back in Stone Age, you know, world, if two if two cultures come together who have never inter- interacted before, what's going to happen? Um, well, the, they're most likely going to have some conflict. Mm-hmm. And that conflict maybe is settled, you know, through war or interbreeding or whatever it is that happens. But there's going to be conflict because the two people don't see the world the same way. And so you have this idea, especially in this country, that we can benefit from other cultures. And then in reality, you imagine that when any two cultures come Combined, that there's a clash that that's involved. There's kind of a battle of ideas when you have when you have two cultures coming together, um, and they have two different ideas on a certain topic. In a sense, those ideas are doing battle, and one of them will prevail, or maybe some combination of those two come out, and there's some new part of our culture that's developed. But there's this idea that when you bring cultures together, there's a cultural clash, there's conflict, there's war, there's argument, and that that process. Um, that process maybe it's good maybe it's bad I don't know but I just think it's strange that we talk about multiculturalism in this country as though our melting pot is the reason we're so successful because we have all these different people and different ideas and different ways of life um, without talking about the, the other side of the coin that when you have ideas come into interaction with each other there's fucking conflict yeah. so you're going to have conflict so we live in this country that is I mean, as far as it looks to us constantly in conflict and we create beautiful things, and, and new new things come out of the United States for that reason. But that you can't do that without expose, without rid the risk of that bloody conflict. Yeah, um, it's interesting. This kind of ties back into the
1: postmodern w- meanings of words thing. Uh, but apparently, the word diversity was a negative word for throughout a lot of human mm. history, and then you know in the progressive era they started like rebranding it. You know what I mean?
0: That's interesting. Especially when you think of like, like diversity among, um, diversity among parts in a machine that you have to replace Mm -hmm. is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. You know, a different size of this, a little different shape of that bad idea. All one. And and you, and you think about that with like, um, cultures like Japan that are really homogenous or Sweden, you know, it's like you, you get a different sized cog in that machine, uh, it's a problem. Sweden's got some different sized cogs at the moment. They sure do. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you about this uh, while we're talking about postmodernism. Uh, let me find it. Okay. So one of the biggest things in uh, this postmodern philosophy is something that has come up a little bit here and there that you've tried to bring up, and I haven't really given it a fair shake. This idea of that that there is no objective reality. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the post, like when we talk about. Um, when we talk about the mystic experience and psychedelics and you know the, the the problems of perception and all that when we talk about that we say that look even though our subjective experiences are all different and we can't we can't know if our experiences are really telling us what the world is like it's just what it seems to us that what, what we're saying is that there is an objective reality and that none of us can agree on it or that our experiences of it are basically we're blind to, to other people's experience of it so we, we don't have any kind of cultural knowledge of the objective reality. Um, what postmodernism seems to say is that it, it doesn't exist. And this is a really interesting topic and I'd love to have a conversation with somebody who know, who's in the know about sure. this because, because my take is that whatever the objective reality is, and again, I have no idea, I have no experience of it, Whatever that is, is, to me, is God. It's what, it's what everything is built upon. And if a postmodernist would say there is no objective reality, then what, to me that means there is no God and there is no structure to, in, to which reality could have been built on. So I immediately, <coughs> I immediately say like philosophically um, that is a critical objection. I cannot go with postmodernism because because of that alone, without without considering any of the other things. When they say there is no objective reality, that I'm saying, then there is no being, there is no us, there is no this conversation isn't happening, there is nothing. So that's my fundamental disagreement. But I don't really understand what they mean by that so much.
1: Yeah, um, I, I I would honestly think that if you ask them for the You know, the ins and outs of it. A lot of the philosophers who are talking about this stuff probably don't. Like, No, you know, it's an idea.
0: Um, It it is. It is. And, like, one of the things that they'll say, and I don't know who who said this, if anybody, if any one person, but they'll say logic, reason, science, and religion. That none of that tells you the truth about, uh, ultimate truth about the world. None of that. They're putting religion in the same category as empirical science and saying none of this tells you anything real. Mm-hmm. Now, there, and there's a way in which I completely agree with that. Um, and, I, and I think that's why I need to read Deleuze. That's why I need to read those guys. Because there's something there that I absolutely agree with. But, but to say that, there, that objective reality is nothing... To me that's either a misunderstanding of the philosophy it probably is yeah. or it's something that I just can't I can't I can't go with I can't get over that hump so I I need to figure out what the fuck they mean by that Yeah Um
1: I you know I <clears throat> I don't know I guess when I say that you know in a mystic experience you're seeing I think I've said before that you're seeing how things really are um I don't know that that's necessarily true. You know what I mean? I think it seems meaningful, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that it's the way things really are either. You know, like, I'm not sure that this is the way things really are. I'm not sure that that's the way things really are.
0: So I agree with you, and I'm going to say something hard to put into words about it. Um, I think that what you see in a crazy... Visionary experience like what some people might say they see if they did LSD or or psychedelic mushrooms or something Or if they had like, you know a certain type of tantric yoga or whatever that that people can get to those sorts of experiences That whatever it is you're seeing and we've talked about what those images are um, (coughs) That what what they are are something you've never experienced before and that's the important thing It's the idea that there is more to what can be experienced than what you imagined there was and so, to me, it, what I'm saying is, it's like a symbol. Whatever you're seeing in those experiences is a symbol that there is objective reality. I'm not saying that it is objective reality, so I would agree with you on that. But I can understand why you would say it. Yeah. Um, because you see, like it, you feel like you're seeing behind the veil that you're that you're you're, you're seeing all the cogs and, and you know uh, things working. You're kind of seeing behind the scenes, um, and it could be. That you're seeing something more real than this, than reality. Sure, but it could also be that what you're seeing is a hallucination, mm-hmm. a a, symb- a a meaningful one. Yeah, a symbol that tells you there's something else out there, and that's that's the the most powerful part of a mystic experience is to have your have your confident. Packaged up Mm -hmm. idea of reality turned on its head, and in a way that's not a little thing. It's it's like it's not just turned on its head. It's it's turned on its head and spinning a million miles an hour. And uh, you know you don't have you don't know what the fuck is going on.
1: Yeah. So I've gotten valuable. I got I don't know lessons from the mystic experience, right? I'm sure I know you have too. I would say the biggest one. The one that stands out as the most obviously true is that I have no fucking idea what's going on. You know, I try my best, and I don't think that, like, I'm not one of these people who's like, it's impossible for you to know, just stop being curious. Right. You know, I'm still very curious. I want to know. Yes. But I don't know that I will ever know, you know?
0: I think think that's true. You know. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's true. I also think that the fact that you want to know is the... I want to say something like the common instinct of humans uh-huh like it's it's the most fundamental instinct of humans um so I don't know if I don't know if that's a, like a too powerful a statement or or what but it seems to be true to me you know to to want to know what it is you are and what it what this what this reality is yeah that that question is what unites all of us yeah and and it comes up in the mystic experience like at least for me like i can't av- i can't avoid it. It's like there is no other there is no other um task that can be that can be accomplished in that experience other than that type of wisdom specifically. You know, it's weird.
1: That is weird. It's weird. Yeah.
0: But I agree with you that that even even those visions are not necessarily representative of objective reality.
1: And that's an important thing to point out here people is Um, I'm not Jordan Peterson. I don't always speak like precisely clearly. Like I I think I have said on this podcast before that I think I'm seeing the true reality in that mystic experience, Uh, but that's not even what I believe really. So, you know, I don't speak precisely. Don't take everything I'm saying 100% seriously. But 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 it's, (laughs) it's,
0: it's, it's generous of you to admit it because most people once they've said something, they just d- double down. Yeah, yeah. But it's but it tells something to me like you're capable of recognizing, um, you know, your your thoughts and ideas developing. You can change with them, and yeah. and if that means your understanding of an event changes, fair enough. Then you sure. go then you go with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true, and I and I agree. I think that I would have said, and maybe have said, that what you're seeing in those experiences is. The matrix of being, whatever the scaffolding that this is all built upon, um, and when we talk about it now, I actually agree with you that that maybe is too strong of a statement. But I think that the that the spirit of that statement is what I is is the same. The yes. spirit of that statement is that there is unexplainable wonder and majesty beyond the the ordinary experience of our lives that is possible to experience, that is out there and is completely un un unknown to the majority of the human of the human race
1: yeah so this just popped into my head but i I think i look at our culture we were just talking about culture and i wonder why we're like we're crushing that the uh Mm. the instinct to be interested and to chase that you know i think back in time and you know even like back native americans not that long ago very like spiritual people you know Uh, You go back further, uh, all these, you know, like the Druids back in the day, you have all these people who are a, like a bridge to that sort of thing. And they like bring us things back from these experiences. And, uh, and we don't have
0: a whole lot of that going on, you know, it's very true. And, And it makes me wonder if we had a psychedelic culture, like you, and again, I don't know like all the facts of this, but it seems like. In the in the tribal days, in the you know stone age days, people living in tribal societies had regular use of of mind altering substances, and shamans, and like you say, had spiritual wisdom that was that was brought to the culture from these sham, shaman voyages mm-hmm. of these people. So we, there was a time when you might you might say that we had a psychedelic culture. And you can see things like the cave paintings that we talked about, the from from France and Spain, these ancient cave paintings. And there's evidence uh, from the symbols that of, of the Stone Age, uh, like a lot of spirals and, and things that you know that bring to mind psychedelic experiences. That it may have been at a certain time, you know, deep in history, that human beings had a psychedelic culture, whatever that might mean. So here's my question: You said, why do we? Why do we in this culture? Want to uh, so ba- bury that yeah. stuff, and there, we can talk about that. We we should, but it, what if we didn't? What what? I was just uh, thinking, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like what if we didn't? What if psychedelic use was a ubiquitous thing, and and people did it? Like there are cultures in the Amazon where children take ayahuasca regularly. That's fucking children, crazy. and it's a part of their part of their culture. Um, my question is, what kind of changes? to the culture do you think you would see if we truly had an openly psychedelic culture or a culture that was friendly to it that wasn't uh, hostile to it that accepted it what, yeah. I mean what what do you think would be the most dramatic changes to the, just our daily life and the structure of government the structure of society do, you know you have any thoughts do you have any creative ideas so
1: I think it's interesting because in an, I think it was maybe last week you talked about if human beings could live forever yeah, yeah. you know so You know, I think about the crazy things that we could do, but with psychedelics, it's like, you know, you imagine those cultures, and you have they're they're not even living forever, but that knowledge can live forever. You can have these people who develop these psychedelic traditions and cultures, and they do it. You know, they're they're in there in that space for. Like a career's worth of time, you know? And they're training the people who are coming up behind them. So they're talking mm. about these ideas with people while they're sober. And then those people who are sober, like, processing those ideas in the real world, then they go into that space themselves. And they, you know, who knows how developed it would be. Oh, man, it's so funny. Yeah. So, I mean, like,
0: who knows? I, You know, I don't even know. No, <laughs> no, no. That's great because it made me think of it. You tell me if this is where you were going. Like, anything that you do... Is, uh, that you're do, doing for the first time is difficult. You have to learn and get better until you master something. Yep. Um, having a visionary experience, having a mystic experience. Um, if anybody has done psychedelic drugs, like large doses of psychedelic drugs, who have had this type of a crazy visionary experience, you, you you have some idea of what I mean. Or if you're one of those rare few who have accomplished it some other through some other means, um, that when you first have that experience... Especially one that's particularly intense, and I know Kyle. I know Kyle's familiar. Yeah, you cannot make sense of that. Good luck. It is. It, it makes your head spin in a way that makes you understand that that phrase makes your head spin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus, it, it, you have you have no bearings. You, you, there's no up from down. There's no context. You are just flowing through this chaotic mess of of I don't even know what, and everything seems meaningful, but in no way that makes any sense to yeah. you, and you can't even remember what you just saw a second ago to tie, try, try to tie it together. You are spinning like a top through through chaos. Mm-hmm. But the more you do it, the more controlled the experience becomes. And like anything, imagine if you had somebody who taught you, some somebody who had a thousand mystic experiences, who taught you every day from the time you were a baby until the time you were a, a, an adult, how to have them properly, how to navigate them how good could you get at tripping? And, w- and what might you discover in that crazy world that exists? Yep. What might you discover there if you could navigate that world like we navigate this world? Maybe how to build pyramids and shit, dude. How about that? What you think <laughs> about that?
1: Some ancient alien shit. Oh, uh, boy. But to to be serious on that a little bit you know Graham Hancock is a super interesting guy because he talks about these ancient civilizations which is super interesting yeah. in and of itself but then he also talks about psychedelics and like what we're talking about right now like he talks about these amazingly advanced civilizations for thousands of years ago maybe they maybe like they if we could discover this culture more evidence of it maybe we would discover that uh you know like what we're talking about played out in history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's possible. It's I mean, possible. You know, it's
0: there's no evidence of it really, but I, I don't want to derail. No, you're so good. For, I'm... So forgive me if I will, but there's this thing that comes up, and you may you may mention this, but Joe mentions it all the time, and I and I have a thought on it. Okay. The idea of the universe being infinite. Yeah. And what Joe always says is what that means is. That there's infinite an, an infinite number of yous, yeah. an infinite universe is doing exactly what you do are doing now, saying exactly the words you've said. Like that's what infinity means. It means that it, it, it means that it's so vast and continues forever that every possibility plays out infinitely. So you, you've lived a, an infinite number of lives, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't think that. No, I don't either. Oh, okay. Um, my my mind is something like this: that it, infinity doesn't mean. That you, you've lived an infinite number of lives. What it what it means is that there's been an infinite that there is infinitely different lives. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not like there's a million Joe Rogans. There's only one Joe Rogan. I know. I, it's that there's infinitely more different types of Joe Rogan. I mean, not not that name. Like there's how do I put this? It's that. Like numbers from one to from one to infinity.
1: Yeah,
0: every number is different. There's not a, there's not a, a million ones. They're all numbers. They're all so. different, but they don't end. Yeah. And I, so that's my idea of infinity. Things do, things don't repeat as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, they I build like on each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Another way that I was thinking about it is that you've got Joe Rogan, and you also in an infinite universe or whatever the fuck that means. You also have like infinite possibility Joe Rogan could have, you know, gone on every choice that he made, every choice that somebody else made for him, every like accident that happened, Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan could have been any, everybody could have been a million in a million different circumstances. Not, not a million either. Like a bajillion infinity,
0: you know? Yeah. So that's interesting. And I like that better. Um, but here, here's a, here's an idea. Um, All right, so I know there hasn't been an infinite number of human beings that have lived, but supposing we don't die out in the depth of the sun or we evolve into something that allows us to continue in some other way, Mm -hmm. that there has been what you just described. There has been an infinite number of Joe Rogans living a different life. We just call them different names, right? You're a Joe, I'm a Joe, we're all Joe. We're all the real slim shady Kyle. Every human being that's ever lived has been a different reboot. Of 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 a human, yeah. So we're all that's interesting. yes. We're all exactly what you just said yeah. with a different face, and like I said, as long as we don't die out, as long as we continue, we're that's going to be infinite. Yeah, we're just and that and so this is interesting too because it makes me think of reincarnation in a way that I actually can go with. Uh-huh. Like okay. I I never liked the idea of reincarnation.
1: Yeah,
0: I never liked that, and there are people you know you've heard the stories where people will say. That they have memories from a past life, yeah. and you even see the, like those kids that you think like, oh, this kid couldn't couldn't be lying in this sophisticated way. He's only six years old, and he's yeah. talking about you His know parents fly, flying them. a flying a pilot in the Second World War, or yeah, flying yeah. A, flying a plane. Like there's stuff like that, and I always thought Hokum. I always thought that is that is bullshit. Is a bunch of I bullshit. still more or
1: less do, to be honest with yeah,
0: you. Yeah, and, and that and that part I do. So it's like. The idea of souls being recycled, like I'm going to get the soul that belonged to some other body before me, yeah, yeah. that that's that that's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. But but the idea that energy doesn't get created or destroyed, that it that it's recycled in a way that like the life force is recycled.
1: I love this. This is great. The, go ahead.
0: <laughs> Good. No, I can get down with that. Man. Yeah,
1: exactly. Me, too. Like um, it, because it's almost like, yeah, that's what I believe anyways. It's like it's just like recontextualized into um, what's the word? Uh, Recreation What's the word For reincarnation (laughs) Jesus Christ Uh, You know Like it's just Like here's this idea Of reincarnation That I'm with you Like It just seems dorky You know Like you come back So I've never really been a fan Of the idea of reincarnation But put in that context I do like
0: it I do I do I do And so like When I was growing up And I told you I've always been interested In religion So I'm like Learning about Buddhism When I'm You know When I'm like A teenager Or whatever I'm reading about it, and I learned that in Hinduism and in Buddhism that, that they have this idea of reincarnation, and I'm like, okay, well, of all the different religions that talk about life after death, this whole reincarnation idea is, it, to, in me. It's, for me, it's bottom of the barrel. Like, this is, you're grasping for straws with this one, guys. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I can go with this. Um, but but the, the idea that, like, post-mystic experience, the idea that, that thinking that everything is one and that the substance that we all are is God that whatever that is, that's the life force that we're talking about. The personality that's attached to it, it, it really is not is not important in the grand scheme of things. What, what's important is the life force. What's important is God. Yeah. And if that's the thing that animates you and me, it's the same spirit, it's the same soul, it's the same being. Um, and that's what I believe the important message of the mystic experience really is, is, to, is the oneness. It's the recognizing your identity with everything and, and, and everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the idea that that what animates us is the same. And, and it just gets recycled, and it's just part of the process. Well, that's one way to, to talk about reincarnation. That's not I'm 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 the Dalai Lama that was born from the one that just died. Yeah, it's a very different way of thinking about it. And I, I think I can get down with it, man. I like it. I'm with you on that. Um,
1: just to go back to one thing that we were talking about, you were saying that there are, you know, cultures down in like Peru where kids take ayahuasca oh, regularly, yeah. and that made me think that we were talking before about like inside looking out. Or outside looking in at a culture. Yeah. I'm sure that, like, if I showed my mom a baby tripping on ayahuasca, she would be repulsed. Absolutely. She would think those they were abusing that child, and they don't at all. And oddly enough, I'm not sure that I do either. I really. was going to say <laughs> that. I was
0: going to say that. There's a part of me that, and again, I, you and me sitting here talking to each other are two people that appreciate the value of a mystic experience. Yeah. Um, but the idea that I could watch a kid having one. There's a part of me that's like, no. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to protect that kid. There's a part of me that thinks that's abuse. And uh, and I wonder if it boils down to the voluntarism because the kid can't choose exactly. Can't choose like like what I You know what I mean? Yeah. The the parent is going to tell the kid, "This is good. Take take this drink." The kid doesn't get to choose to have the mystic experience. It's sort of forced upon him. That maybe that's the angle. Maybe that's the reason I don't like it. Mm-hmm. It's it's like um it's like in our in our religion that we grew up in, you know, usually a kid is is told that they can get baptized and become a Christian at around the age of 12. They they're told that you can now voluntarily give your give your heart to God. They'll they'll say, "So now you have the um what is what's the word they use? Um Well, anyway, now now you're psychologically capable yeah, of yeah. making this decision and a what baby is the term Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> but it, but it, but it, that, that's why you wouldn't age um, of accountability something like that yeah, yeah. so so you wouldn't ask uh, somebody younger to to give your heart to God because it wouldn't it wouldn't exactly it wouldn't exactly mean, mean anything, anything. Yeah. and so maybe that's what it is if if you gave a kid ayahuasca you're going to send them on this spiritual journey and again as a parent you might think. I know what's best for my kids. I want them to eat this. I want them to drink that. I want them to do these activities. I know what's best for my kids. That's how we feel. Yeah. And so if I was in that culture, I would give my kid the ayahuasca. I know I would.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, that being said, even though I can, I'm with you, like, I don't have kids. You do. Um, but if I did, I can't imagine that I would... Give them ayahuasca, even though I like think ayahuasca is cool. I want to do it, you know. Right. Um. I still like can't. I I don't think that that would happen.
0: It's like, it's like this, man. I think that those people in the Amazon believe that by giving their children the drink, the brew, that they're that they're introducing their children to God. That they feel like they're sending their child to meet God, because that's if you've ever done DMT, you know what we're talking about. That's what happens to you. And I'm, I'm asking myself, if would I would I send my kids to meet to meet God? Would I would I give them that experience when they couldn't ask for it? Would I give it to them? And should I give it to them? I mean, when you when you put it that way, you when you phrase it as meeting God,
1: it makes it seem like it almost makes it seem like selfish of you not to do That's it. That's what I'm saying. That's
0: the cultural difference that someone from the West could say, "You're getting your kid high." And, yeah. so, and someone from that culture could say, "No, I'm sending my beautiful child to see God to yeah. meet to meet its Creator, to I realize mean,
1: that she is God."
0: I mean, <sighs> yeah. And that's at the heart of that's at that's at the heart of the problem. Uh, the, the fact that one person could call another person bad because of something that they're doing, it's because of the. It's not because of what they're doing. It's because of their understanding it differently. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, man.
1: Yeah, that is something else. Um, I think, for me, I think the, the voluntary argument you made of it makes a lot of sense for me, and it uh, it makes me think, you know, we talked last week, I like had mentioned just in passing that uh, someone had mentioned that Christianity is, li- or I'm sorry, libertarianism, and pretty much all, like, liberal philosophy, political philosophies are, like, Reorderings of Christianity, like taking God out of it. It's like oh, yeah. all of all of our West, Western political philosophy. It's all like Christianity with God out of it. Um, and I forget why I was saying that. But Ayahuasca. Um,
0: taking God out of the culture or out of the.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I forget what I was saying. But hmm. Fucking ruin that. But it happens
0: to me all the time. I've yeah. I've done it many times on the podcast.
1: I got to start taking better
0: notes. Yeah, me too. But. Even sometimes I'll take notes, and then I read it. I'm like, "What? What, did, what was I
1: gonna? What was I trying to remember?" Well, one thing with taking notes is that, like, I'm sitting here like jotting down a note,
0: and you're not talking, listening to me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's hard. I mean, these I, you are the know. problems, man. These are yeah. the these are the technical problems. <laughs> <You gotta laughs> get some of that alpha brain. Oh, uh, yep. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, going back to what we were talking about, teaching, um, like, if you if you had a culture that was psychedelic that you would have elders that could teach you how to be psychedelic. You would have elders who would teach you how to navigate those experiences and like what the possibilities might be in that experience. If you were taught how to navigate it, like that's a really interesting idea. And it makes me, it brings up something to to my mind about teaching, which I want to ask you about. And I heard it on, um, I heard, uh, um, I heard Thaddeus and Joe talking about it. Actually, I was listening, listening to one of those podcasts when Kyle pulled up to the house today. And, um, uh, they were talking about when you teach, how much better you learn the thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so they talked about it in two ways. They talked about, uh, Thaddeus talked about teaching college because that's what he did. Like, I'm, I'm going to go and teach kids these complicated ideas. Now I have to figure out ways of thinking about them differently to make them simple, to, to really distill them and figure out what the important things are to communicate. Um, and then they talked about it in terms of fighting and jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And that when people uh, are good, you know, fighters, when they then go teach it, they go to a whole different level because now they're thinking about it in a in a different way altogether. So I want to talk about this a little bit because because I wonder if that's missing. It's like we don't teach people how to. Well, there's a lot of things we don't teach people how to do anymore. Yeah, we don't teach people how to think critically yeah, yeah. or how to think for themselves or to or
1: to evaluate. You know, we teach people how to follow rules. You know, be on time. Uh, you know, you know the, the whole spiel. Public schools garbage. Yeah. I,
0: imagine if you were a shaman. If you if you grew up in a psychedelic culture and you were a shaman and you mm-hmm. were good at it, mm-hmm. and then you started teaching it, like you, you then you'd become a a master shaman. You know, yeah, yeah. like what what kind of religion would a master shaman bring to the world? That's <laughs> man. Um, I don't know. I don't know either. It may uh, actually, I do. I do know. I think it'd be something like what we've been talking about on this podcast. Oh yeah. Um,
1: that that's kind of uh, that may be kind of narcissistic though. If it might we be it had might master shamans. They would agree with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's a little bit of that maniacal arrogance we've been yeah. warning, been warning our listeners of. Yeah. Uh, but it's good to know that we're subject to it too.
1: You know, one thing I do love, and this ha- this happens not all the time. But it's happened to me a good amount. It's like I'll develop it. I may have actually said this on the podcast already, but it just makes me feel good. So I'm going to bring it up again. Uh, when I develop an idea in my head about how things are going um, and then I hear somebody that I like, like and respect, like basically say that thing. It's like, fuck yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. There's like a double edged sword. There's definitely something when you when you hear somebody uh, that you respect or admire say something that you that you believe or mm-hmm. think it, that feels awesome. But there's also this thing that's like uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Like yeah, yeah every, that's true. every idea that I think is awesome that I think I came up with, guess what? You didn't. Yeah. You yeah. didn't.
1: Well, I still give myself some credit because it's like, okay, I, maybe I didn't like come up with the idea first. But I did kind of come up with it on my mm, own. So That's
0: interesting. Yeah. You know what else is interesting about that is that what brought you to that realization is probably – Completely different yeah, than, that's what, really than what brought the other people to the that's same realization, and there's a mystery there. There's yeah. a, there's a mystery about that like pattern behind things. Yeah, I, that I think is, uh, I think it's runs through everything we talk about. It runs through the politics. It runs through the religion. It runs through the cultural stuff. It runs through all that stuff that we talk about. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Yeah. So I just one more thing that I've been thinking about. Okay, so I I. I take on these labels, you know, like libertarian, and now it's like I don't really... like Libertarians have ruined the word libertarian for me, right? So I took on anarchist for a while, but now, and calling yourself an anarchist, even if that is what I am, it just seems like...
0: Uh, it's got baggage, that word.
1: Yeah, it's got baggage. Uh, it seems immature almost, yep. you know? Um, I'm, I'm not really, like, hunting for a label, but... Um, Whatever the idea of an anarchist is, okay? So let's say that there's a person who's an anarchist. They consider themselves an anarchist. They live in a society that has a government. Uh, The state exists. The state in this scenario is violating that anarchist's rights. Uh, And in response, the anarchist um, seeks to prevent that violation of their rights via the organs of the state. Okay? Okay. So they're going to, you know, if something's going on with their property, they're going to become mayor and stop that from happening. Does that mean, does that make you not an anarchist? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah?
0: I'm not sure that it does. Well, it makes, mm, see, that that's interesting because it's, there's like a, uh, there's like a reality of things. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a utopia. There's like an ideal. And... It seems like those ideals, like communism, for instance, it doesn't it doesn't work in the real world. It doesn't play out the way it does it on paper. Yeah, you know, there's a difference between the ideal and and what happens when you put it into practice. It changes it.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, which is an interesting idea, in and of itself.
1: Very interesting. Um,
0: but I lost my train of thought.
1: Um, so I mean, oh, oh, just oh about
0: about participating in the state. If you're yeah, an yeah. anarchist, it reminds me of um, <laughs> reminds me of that that uh, scene from uh. Uh, stranger than fiction. If anybody's seen that movie, it's a Will Ferrell movie that I happen to very much love. But it's not a traditional Will Ferrell movie. It is a comedy, kind of. Made me cry though. Like, yeah, legitimately. It's a really good movie, and it's got Maggie Gyllenhaal in it. And there's a scene where they're on the bus together. It was like the scene where they finally make make friends a little bit. They've been enemies up to that point, and uh, uh, <laughs> and she asks him, um, or he asks her, her accuses her of being an anarchist and she <laughs> said and she says
1: I forgot about that yeah
0: she says what so I'm go- uh, I'm going to an an-, an an anarchist meeting and he says yes I believe you are he says she's like so, I- so I'm going to a place where anarchists are assembling <laughs> and, he- and he's like yeah I think so and, he- and she's like wouldn't that kind of defeat the purpose <laughs> so that you know that's that's the idea it's exactly the idea that you're bringing up here sure um, can you use the instruments of the state to achieve your philosophical goal, even if in doing, even if in by participating in it, you're undermining your stated, you know, beliefs. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Fucking hard, hard for me to answer on the spot. So I think that if
1: you're an anarchist and involving yourself with the state makes you not an anarchist anymore anarchists just have no recourse you know like we like in, in my mind libertarians are handcuffing themselves with especially like anarchist types of libertarians are handcuffing themselves with like you said this utopian ideology well if you mm. if you if you like handcuff yourself nothing is ever going to change and you're going to sit around and watch better men than you make
0: a difference Ooh. So yes. I mean, so so Jordan Peterson would talk would say that differently. They, it, you, they, he would say that the chaos has to emerge for something new to be created. So you have to you can't be too much order. You can't buckle it down too much. You mm-hmm. have to always have a little bit of flexibility, so that you're so that whatever it is we're talking about, if it's an idea, if it's a culture, whatever it is, that it can always transform. It's the reason. It's the reason why our constitution can be amended. That's yes. the same reason we 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 give the opportunity for a little bit of chaos to come back in and shake things up. I don't know where I was going with that. I started talking about Jordan Peterson, got excited.
1: Happens <laughs> <laughs> to the best of us. Um, but I, I, I really do think that, you know, they, i I'm sure I've used the word and before, you know, this, uh, theoretical AnCap cap world or country, um, You can't act like we live there now, you know, like, because, I mean, because it's, nothing's ever going to change. I don't know. I just, like, I don't know how somebody who believes that if you get involved in the state, you're not an anarchist, I don't understand how they can have, like, a moral leg to stand on. It's like, well, you're not doing anything, you know? Like, I mean, I guess they, you know, they can. There's, like, the agorist way of... You know, cutting the state out through not paying taxes—you know, all yeah. of that kind of stuff, black markets—all, all, you know,
0: right? Um, that's what—that's what I was going to ask you. Like, if, that's important. If, but if you believe your—if you believe in your heart of hearts that you're an anarchist and that's—that's that's the correct, only ethical way to live your life, mm-hmm. and you live in a capitalist society like ours, um, would you—would um, you check out? Would you say I'm a—I'm pu- a purist. I'm a pure anarchist. I believe it in my heart of hearts. I have to embody it, which means that I'm not going to participate in the system, that I'm not going to, you know, uh, yeah. drive on your roads, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to...
1: I think that there are smart ways to do that, and I think that there are ill-advised ways to do that. Uh, I think that there are ways of going the agorist route that, at the moment, you're going to go to federal prison. You know, like, like maybe maybe you're going to get lucky and you'll be the guy who, who you know, is doing, doing whatever. Um, but the state is pretty powerful at the moment, you know, they're, uh, this is the most powerful state that has ever existed in the history of the world. They have Mm. their reaches long and they got multiple arms. They're like a fucking octopus. Mm. Um, So I don't know. I think that uh, on some level we have to operate within the system. And I think that being involved in trying to dismantle it is, I think acceptable.
0: Do you, I want to ask you, because you, you were painting this picture of the arms reaching out. Uh, and I, I'm just imagining that the United States reach, global reach, mm-hmm. that it's like that. It's like our country has arms that reach out and grab, grab parts of the, of the rest of the world. Um, do you think that that was done militarily? And I, and, I, and I mean, uh, let me give you the opposite first, because you know we've got obviously we have military sites all over the place in yeah. Europe and the in the you know Pacific all and the, the Caribbean all over the place. So, do you think that our reach is it was extended that way? We got our we got our tentacles in the world through that that way through military, or do you think it was through money? Like, do do you think that some place like Great Britain or Germany? would would ever have allowed us to put a military base there and have a constant military presence in their country if they weren't wanting a piece of the money that comes along with uh, being a friend of the United States well, trade and otherwise maybe maybe it's different now,
1: but up until recently Germany didn't have a fucking choice so I mean you know like we were <laughs> gonna be there um, right yeah. but other places yeah, I mean, I think that it's both. It's militarily and monetarily, and other things too, culturally. I think we've gotten um, we've gotten you know we've got a a cultural tentacle you know going across the world too, Uh, but that one is like less problematic for me. You know, that's like the good one, the good tentacle. Um, But I think that like monetarily and militarily. I think that those things are separate on some level, but I also think that they work synergistically. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because obviously money is being made and, you know, yeah, all yeah, of that absolutely. sort of
0: thing. Absolutely. I just wonder, I just wonder maybe the question I'm really am really asking is, which one of those do you think is effective? Like if worse comes to worse, do you think we're going to be able to keep control over parts of the world that we don't have any business exerting control over, in my opinion? But do you think that we're that we're we're more likely to be able to hang on to that because of the because of the money relationship or because of the power relationship i definitely think the money relationship i think trade is powerful Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, i think that america has a huge consumer base so why not sell to america um america also creates some pretty cool shit you know uh we granted we probably build it over where you live but uh we design it here um but yeah, trade uh, monetarily, I think, is much more effective. I do think that it's also less um, controllable. You know what I mean? If you're the military, it's like, do what I say, or I'll fucking nuke you. You yeah. know? Uh, monetarily, it's like, buy it, please. You yeah. know?
0: Um, well, so. there, yeah, but and it's funny because what you believe to be the more powerful of the two of them is the voluntary one. That's interesting, and yep. I agree. I agree.
1: And it, it, like you saying that. I can almost be like, oh, of course, of course, he thinks that. But I wasn't even thinking about it. until I know of exactly. Yeah.
0: that's why. I, that's why I pointed it yeah, out. because yeah. it's, it, like- it's consistent with your philosophy, and that's 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 brilliant, man. Because it leads me into something I want to talk about. Right. It's about embodiment. Okay. So you. So this is kind of taken from Jordan Peterson, but it's an idea that um, that you embody the things that you believe. And that you, the, the way you act when no one's looking, the way you act when you're not even paying attention yeah, yeah. tells you what you really believe deep down. And that's what just happened to you. You know, you you sided with, again, the, the powerful uh, side being uh, trade, voluntary trade and not power, without realizing that that is consistent with your philosophy.
1: Yeah, that's It's true. brilliant,
0: it's brilliant. Awesome. So here's what I want to ask you about. So we were talking earlier about the crazy fractal stuff you see in a, in a mystic experience. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about that that visual being symbolic of something else. It has meaning because it's symbolic of something else. And, uh, and I think that human beings are like that, that we're symbolic, that we're, and I didn't, I didn't understand what I even meant by that because this is something that I've been playing around with since kind of the early stages of this kind of mystic his my mystic history, you might say, that uh, I didn't understand when, when I had like a word or a symbol that I'm looking at that means something. And, uh, and I was thinking about language a lot and thinking about how the things like words and symbols, that, that I, the way I made sense of those was exactly the, way, the same way that I made sense of myself and other people. That there's some way in which human beings are symbolic of something else. So here's where I'm going with this. Jordan Peterson says that you, uh, that you embody, sometimes subconsciously, the things you believe um, without realizing it. And then if you want to understand people, that you pay attention to how they behave. And the example I use, and I've said it many times, and I'll say it again, and I apologize for not having a more creative example, but it's a good one. It's the college kid who's um, idealistic and communist and believes it's a utopia and hasn't hasn't considered all of the you know more dirty details. Who believes it's achievable, this utopia. That that college kid writes a paper on communism and gets a great grade, and that the teacher says to him, um, you, did, you, you wrote an awesome essay on communism, really well thought out, really well researched. I like your arguments. This, you got an A plus. Since you're such a fan of communism, how about this? Would you like to give me 20 points from your grade? to give to the people in the class that got the lowest scores yeah. so that things can be more equal? Since, since, you're, since you believe in communism, would, sure. you, would you like that? And the college kid says, no fucking way. Yeah. I, I put the time in. I did all the work. Those people fucked off. I'm, no way I'm, no I'm going to give them their grade. And the guy says, I thought you were a communist. So it's the idea is that the guy, is, he is embodying capitalist philosophy Absolutely. and claiming to be a communist. Yeah. So this is what Jordan says, that people embody beliefs. And that's how I think we're symbols, that we, <coughs> that we embody in our psyche and in our behavior. Ooh, yeah, things, okay. We represent things that we believe without even realizing it. Yeah. Now, here's where it gets even crazier. So I'm glad you're coming with me on this journey, Kyle. So that's how I think we might be symbols. Check this out. You know, I remember how earlier we were talking about cultures coming together and how we think cultural diversity is good, but when different cultures come together, there's conflict, and we see that. So what happens, what happens when you have an idea um, in one culture, like in Nazi Germany, and in another culture, like Great Britain and the United States, that don't see eye to eye, like whatever it might be. It's about eugenics. It's about you know the future of the human race, whatever it is. Yeah. We have a different idea about it. Battling versions of fascism. Yeah, of course. So we go to war. So we go to war. We kill each other until one side gives up. And then what happens is the side who wins their culture their idea gets to gets to win and take the pl- take the place of it yep. right yep. so check this out uh, i'm imagining a literal war like world war 2 with all of the catastrophes the, you know i don't have to tell you but the mustard gas and the yeah. and the you know the people dying from amputations and the you know the holocaust and all of it <coughs> all of that shit people dying and killing each other that was symbols doing battle just like cultures when we come together have to have to do battle and one comes on top and so the idea I'm, the, the, the idea I'm playing with is that human beings are physically literally going to war to play out a battle of ideas yeah, yeah. and that in there's a way in which soldiers on the battlefield are embodiments they're symbols of a culture fighting against other symbols of a different culture yeah. and whoever physically kills the one, that's the culture whose ideas win. It Makes me think of chess pieces. Yeah, because the chess piece
1: represents the person on the battlefield. The, ba- the yes. person on the battlefield just re- represents is representative of something else, Jesus some
0: larger chessboard. And that is that dude is part of this fractal. It's, yeah. part, it's part of the wisdom. It's part of what the what the mystic experience tries to tell you is that it's turtles all the way down. All the way that down. the same type of thing that happens. When academics write papers against one another, this peer review process where you, you have an idea and I shit on it, and then, uh, and then you, cr- you correct the idea and somebody else shits on it, and on and on and on we go, that that's happening on paper in colleges, and it's happening on the battlefield, and it's the same thing that's happening. That's interesting. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, this might actually be a postmodern conversation we're having, yeah. and I just don't understand the goddamn so idea. i got to dig into it more. Oh. It would be nice if we could have someone explain it to us. But just the, the, but that idea, when it occurred to me, it, it, it terrified me. It terrified me that like, the real life, the real world playing out, the soldier that's killing his brother in, this, in the Civil War, literally, mm-hmm. and, and watching him die on the battlefield, and the, the gore and the panic and the terror and the horror and all of that emotion and, and, and terror, that terrible stuff that's going off, that what that, what that stuff is is maybe avoidable. It, it's 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 like this it's like this unconscious process that's playing out um, you know in real life when it could instead be played out with words or or some other way and it, it terrified me to think that that if people just knew that that maybe war would wasn't necessary and you know it's like i don't i don't understand it well enough but it's just this scary idea that what's that the history of the world is really the history of of of, of ideas and culture, the yeah. development, the development of the right way to be, the right way to live, and we all have a different idea of that. And you know, maybe the goal, maybe the goal is this homogenous new world order. You know, this conspiracy theory, new world order that we're all going to eventually agree on. We're all going to mix together till we're sufficiently the same shade of brown, and we all worship the same. Uh, the same God you know and that's that's the end game or something
1: that sounds boring it sounds
0: it sounds terrifying it sounds terrifying
1: yeah what you know uh, maybe that's like going touching back on the cultural thread that went all the way through this podcast which I enjoyed very much um Looking at that now, we're like, that sounds boring and
0: awful. But who knows? You know, like when when you're in it, who fucking knows? It does sound boring and awful. But you're you're right. We're we're looking at it from the outside. Yeah. (laughs) If that sort of thing were achievable, and now I'm finding myself putting my shoes, putting myself in the shoes of like the worst progressives and and communists (laughs) that I can imagine. How those feel? But if (laughs) they're a little comfy. (laughs) Uh, But but if that was possible to homogenize everything so that everybody believed the same things, considered themselves to be the same race. There's no more race, racism. There's no more inequality. There's no more Everything is the same. That would be terribly boring and and terribly peaceful and happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nobody's different. Nobody's f- rocking the boat. It's like some brave new world shit, man. And it and it reminds me of that Nietzsche quote. Yeah. And it, you know, it reminds me of that Nietzsche quote, man. God's, God is dead? God is dead. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know, man. I feel like uh,
1: that's probably a good place to wrap up. Just so, you know, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say Next. other than on Brook thinks you guys are all communists. You, you specifically, Chris. Oh,
0: Jesus. <laughs> well, um, I don't know that I understand either, uh, but it was interesting trying to understand with you, Kyle, and that's the whole point of this podcast.
1: Yeah, I feel like we've been having some good ones recently. Me These, too. like,
0: you know. Yeah, they're a little bit, little bit more, um, a little bit more loosey goosey, loosey goosey, a little bit more improvisational. Yeah, a little bit more of the. It's the podcast jazz now, I like the fucking Almond Brothers, let's, dude. Let's rename the podcast, the Podcast F- Jazz.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Podcast Jazz. We should
1: start another podcast called Podcast Jazz.
0: Uh, keep an eye out for that, guys. Another podcast coming up called Podcast Jazz with your hosts. Not me. I don't know. I'm doing it. Maybe me. I don't know. We'll right. see. See you guys. Love you guys. Let's find out together in the next episode.